So my wife and I have lived, well, our family has lived in Wisconsin now for, well, Wisconsin and Minnesota. I'm sorry, Midwest is what I meant to say. You guys don't like me saying we're in Wisconsin, do you? We've lived in Minnesota now for seven years, and I woke up this morning, and it was 51 degrees when I left the house. And for a Texas boy, it's just, there's something not right about that. It's not supposed to be 51 until December. Just telling you. Just hold on, right? Exactly. Well, today we are continuing in our sermon series called Faith That Works. And for over the, the course of about the last month, we've been progressing through the book of James. James has had a number of challenging topics for us, um, some hard truths for us, but truths that really transform the way that we interact together as a community of faith. Today, uh, we have yet another difficult topic to uh, explore together, and I can't wait to dive into that with you. So, I think irony is really interesting. You guys think irony is interesting? Anybody think irony is interesting? So, I'm going to tell you a little bit of an ironic story. So, in the late 19th century, there was a minister, a Methodist minister in England by the name of William Booth. And William noticed something that was striking to him about his surroundings. He noticed that at his church, it was only the wealthy, only the well-resourced, only the intellectually elite that were attending church services. In this particular part of the country, there were a fair amount of people that were not as well-resourced, that were poor, that were in poverty, but they were never at chapel. So as a good young minister, as a, a zealous young pastor, he said, that's not right. And so he gathered a group of these people together, these that were downcast, that were the marginalized in society, and he took them with him to church one Sunday. A man by the name of Richard Collier wrote a book called The General Next to God, and he recounts the way that this went down whenever William Booth brought these people into church. It says this in his book, The chapel's outer door suddenly shattered open, engulfing a white scarf of fog. Man, this guy's a good writer. In its wake came a shuffling, shabby contingent of men and women, wilting nervously under the stony stairs of mill manager, shopkeepers, and their well-dressed wives. In their rear, a fire with zeal marched, willful Will Booth, cannily blocking the efforts of the more reluctant to turn back. To his dismay, the Reverend Dunn saw that young Booth was actually ushering these people, none of whose clothes would have raised five shillings, into the very best seats, pew holder seats, facing the pulpit, whose occupants piled the collection plate with glinting silver. This was unprecedented for the poor, if they came to chapel, entered by another door, to be segregated on benches without backs or cushions, behind a partition which screened off the pulpit. Here, though the service was audible, they could not see, nor could they be seen. William Booth, from this point, had about a decade of rejection from the ministry. He and his wife and his family lived in abject poverty. And at the end of that, birthed out of his Methodist tradition, a new church denomination called the Salvation Army. Now, that's certainly a sad story, but you might be sitting back and saying, well, what's, what's the irony here? I don't, I don't really get what's ironic about that. Well, the crazy thing is, about 100 years prior to that, the same story occurred with the birth of the Methodist church, the very church that William came from. 
You see a man by the name of John Wesley. He was an Anglican priest. And he noticed the very same thing, that in church service, it was only the elite. It was only the wealthy that were attending. The poor were relegated to the outside of society. And so he said the same thing. He said, this isn't right. We're not going to do this. So he left his post, began an itinerant ministry where he preached. He preached as many as 42,000 sermons, which is a lot, and had crazy success. So what in the world happened? This church denomination that was formed by John Wesley was the Methodist Church. It came from the Anglican Church. It was in England, in the very same country, the very same neck of the woods. And yet a hundred years later, the Methodist Church lost its way. And they became elitist. And they began to push people out to the margins. What in the world happened? The culprit is our topic for today which is favoritism. Favoritism is this idea that we show undue favor, undue respect, undue adulation to a person or to a group of people at the expense of another person or another group of people. It's where we don't show the intrinsic love that is due to all people, to a certain group of people, for whatever the reason. And you might be saying to yourself, yeah, Jeff, that's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, yeah, I've got my friends and, and I've got my crew, I've got my family, whatever. Just because I don't love these other people, is it really that big of a deal? But favoritism has ghastly effects on our lives. It is horrific what happens in the wake of favoritism. And today, James is going to lead us through a passage where he deals with why we should not show favoritism. And so if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We'll be in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one from a purple chair in front of you. I believe our page number is about 978. Or you can also follow along on the screens behind me here. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich Excuse me, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So just to kind of give you a feel for the severity of favoritism. Again, you may not be convinced yet. I'm going to tell you a little story. So when I was young, I was in Boy Scouts. 
And on a pretty regular basis, as part of the Boy Scouts, we would go on these trips. We would go on camping trips. So I can remember this one time we went on this camping trip and several of us, about eight to ten of us, were sitting in a tent just hanging out, spending some time together. Now of those eight to ten people, it was a little bit crowded in the space, only about four of them were actually staying in that tent. And so one of the ringleaders of the in crowd of our Boy Scout troop had it in his mind that he was going to thin out the troops a little bit, that he was going to thin it out in that particular space. So he started going around and he started pointing at people and saying, why are you here? Okay, so the first person he looks at is staying in the tent and they say, well, this is, uh, this is my tent. Okay, that's a good reason. Next person, why are you here? Similar answer. This continued until he got around to one of the social elite in our Boy Scout troop. And he looks at that guy and he says, why are you here? Oh, wait, I don't have to ask you because you're so-and-so, so you can go anywhere you want. But then he got over to one of the outcasts, one of the marginalized, one of the ones that other people didn't like to be around. And he asked that person, why are you here? The person says to him, well, I just want to spend some time with you guys. I think you guys are cool. And the guy says, get out. We don't want you in here. Now, I know this particular individual pretty well, the person that was kicked out of that tent. And I cannot tell you how damaging that was to that individual. It took years for him to get over that. How terrible it is to be segregated against, to be called out, to be told, you're not worthy of being in the room with me. That's what happened. Many of us, perhaps most of us, have in some way or another felt this type of shaming behavior. This segregation, this being cast aside for something that we can't control. We can't control who we are. We can't control where we're from. It has nasty effects on our lives. So today, James, what he's done is he's outlined three kind of large bucket reasons why we've got to avoid favoritism, why we've got to cast it out of our midst. Because as the people of God, as God's church, we should be the last people to ever show favoritism to someone else. And so he's going to go through a list of these kind of three things that we're going to tear it apart before we sort of find out what our normal response, our natural response should be to people. And the first thing that he reveals to us is that favoritism, when we engage in it, reveals the evil that exists in our own hearts. It reveals the brokenness in us. Looking back at verses 2 through 4. It says this, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So what James is doing here is he's painting a picture, James does a good job of doing this, of two contrasting individuals. The first person that walks in, this is the person that's dressed to the the nines. They've got the nice shirt on. They got the slick new haircut. They're well trimmed. They got the really nice accessories. I'm an accessories guy, you know. So like the shoes and the belt. They got the nice watch, you know, that costs more than most of our cars. But in addition to that, 
This guy doesn't just look the part. He talks the part, too. He's charismatic. He's funny. He's easy to talk to. And what James is painting a picture of is a group of believers that come around this guy and they say, hey, man, you need to come and get the best spot right up front. We just want to spend time with you. We just want to be around you. But at the same time, another person enters the church too. This is a person who's been working all night. This is a person that's having trouble paying the bills. He's dirty. Maybe this is a guy that is socially awkward. He doesn't fit well in crowds. Maybe it's a guy that smokes cigarettes or, or doesn't brush his teeth often. Like he's just kind of, you know, he's the, eh. And what James is saying is, if we reject that person, if we don't show the same level of care and compassion for him that we show for the rich guy, then we're sinning. And the words that he uses in verse 4 are just cut straight to the teeth, cut straight to the quick. If you've done this, then you've discriminated among yourselves. Ah, that's such a heavy word. You've become judges. You've got evil thoughts. What's going on here? I think part of the reason that the church leans this way, that we favor one particular person, is we say, hey, that person can help me be more successful in life. Like, we all want to be around people that, that make us look good, right? I mean, I kind of sympathize with the group of people that went around this guy that was rich, you know, that was well-spoken, that was successful. I mean, in some, in some ways, that's kind of like the way we're trained to act as Americans, as Westerners. We're trained to say, hey, find people that are really successful and put yourself around them. Let them rub off on you a little bit. There was a uh, study, or not a study, rather, but an article that was printed by Entrepreneur Magazine. And it listed four different kinds of people that we should always be putting ourselves around. If we want to be successful, if we want to have a good life, these are the four kinds of people that we should be around. We should be around relentless workers. We should be around people that have positive attitudes. We should be around people that are inquisitive. And we should be around people that are dreamers. Now, it's not wrong to be around those kinds of people. But what about the person that's just your average worker? That's most of us, right? What about the person that's maybe not as inquisitive? They just kind of take it for what it is. The person that, that doesn't think the way a dreamer does. You know, they're just, they're more systematic. They see life, what's right in front of them. Are we supposed to just reject those people? That's a sign of evil in our heart. And it's evil because when we look at people that are more successful and we only put ourselves there, we have selfish motives in our hearts. We say, you know what, this is what I want to be. And it's more about what I want than it is about what that other person needs. And so I'm going to try to get around them. I'm going to just try to let them, you know, the way that they do things flow over me. I'm going to completely change who I am just to be like that person. I don't connect well with this other person. You know, they're hard for me to talk to. You know, they're just not going to do anything for me. That's selfishness. That's brokenness. And what James is saying is that when we do that, we are sinning. We are engaged in the evil that sin brings into our lives. 
The second reason that we should avoid favoritism, showing favoritism, is that God favors the poor. Let's look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom promised to those who love him? God has got a huge soft spot for the down and out, for the broken for the marginalized, for the poor. In fact, much of the Old Testament, at times we see God in his wrath. We see God acting out in vengeance toward a group of people. And most often, the people that he is pouring his wrath upon are people that are showing injustice to others around them. It's people that are not living in a way in accordance to God's design. They're not loving other people. That's most often what God is doing in the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, we see God's affection for the down and out, for the poor. Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of this beautiful discourse called the Sermon on the Mount. And the very first line of the Sermon on the Mount, probably the best sermon ever written, ever spoken, says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, again, this is Jesus speaking. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. God cares so much about the poor. And as followers of God, as followers of Jesus, there is an expectation that we are doing the same. That we show love and hospitality and mercy and grace toward those that are down and out. Those that just, they don't quite have it all together. They're just not there. Maybe they can't get over that hump. Maybe they've been laid off one too many times and they just can't get their feet under them. Verse 5 has an interesting phrase in it. It says, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. I think this needs a little bit of further explanation. What it does not mean is that you have to be poor in order to know God. It doesn't mean that poverty is a requirement. Nor does it mean by its base nature that riches and wealth are evil. That's not at all what it's saying. But rather what it's saying is that when we have nothing, it's easier for us to know God and for us to rely on God. So let me, let me explain this a little further. So one of the issues with wealth in general, and I'm, I'm including all of us as 21st century Americans in this category. We live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world and one of the wealthiest times in history. In general, everyone in this room would be considered wealthy. And one of the issues with our wealth is that it oftentimes distracts us. It causes us to, instead of pouring into God, it causes us to be distracted, to have our attention taken to other things. We have TVs, we have cell phones, we have work, we have jobs that are calling us all the time. We have all of our information right there in the palm of our hands. Some experts say that as many as 4,000 advertisements are consumed by every American every day. 4,000 times a day you are advertised to. And in every single one of those times, what's trying to, what are they trying to do? They're trying to get your attention, right? They're saying, hey, Jeff, 
pay attention, I'm right here. You really need this, or you really need that, or you should live this way. And what happens when we're distracted is we don't pay attention to what God is doing in our midst. And so in a very real way, believers in other parts of the world that that don't have anything, that don't have the distractions, they have an easier pathway to seeing and knowing God because distractions aren't a regular part of their life in the same way it is for us. In the same way, in relying on God, we have a disadvantage compared to other countries in the world, other people that are in more poverty-stricken situations. Let's take medicine as an example. Today, if I have an illness, I can easily go to a medical clinic. I'm going to get the best care in history. I'm going to get the best medication. I'm going to get the best doctors. And those things are good things. Please don't hear me say that those are bad. Those are great things. But if somebody doesn't have those things, then they are truly trusting in God to heal them. If you don't have medicine, if you don't have people that can diagnose you properly, it's just God and you, man. And there's an advantage to that. Because even though we have modern medicine, it is still a miracle that our bodies are healed. It is still God working. It's just that sometimes we get so desensitized to what he's doing. We think that it's the pill I'm taking or the machine that is doing whatever. And we miss the fact that it's actually God that heals us. In those ways, the poor have an advantage. Verses 6 and 7 say this, But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of the one to whom you belong? You see what was going on historically here? The group of people that James wrote this letter to, they were disenfranchised Jewish Christians. They were people that were persecuted so heavily that they had to leave where they were living, move to a new country, try to reestablish something. Well, what they left behind was what? Their jobs, their resources, everything that they had. So these early first century Jewish Christians, they were poverty stricken. And they were oppressed on every side. They were oppressed by the Romans, by the Gentiles. They were oppressed by other Jews. Jews that didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were persecuting and harming and killing this group of people. And what James is saying is, why are you going up to all these people trying to suck up to them? Why aren't you managing the people around you, the people that are hurting, the people that are trying to come in? Why are you showing favoritism that harms them? Don't favor the people that are persecuting you. Favor the people that are part of you. John Calvin, great theologian, 16th century reformer, had this quote related to this particular text. There is no reason for men zealously to pay respect to their own executioners and at the same time to hurt the men who are on their side. And how often does that happen to us? Where instead of loving on believers, instead of loving on people that walk through the doors of the church, even if they're different than us, even if they're broken, even if we're like, ah, I just, I just don't know what to say. But rather we go out in the world where there's hostility toward Christians and we spend all of our time and all of our mental energy and resources trying to cater to people that don't care about what we believe. 
We should not show favoritism. We should not discriminate against the people in our midst that are hurting and that are poor. The third thing that James tells us is that we will be judged for what we do. The reason that we should not show favoritism is that there is judgment. Now, let's read in verses 12 through 13. It says this, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now I think this idea of judgment has a misconception for many of us that are Christ followers, that have been in church for a long time. We think of judgment and condemnation as the same thing. So we say, okay, well, people that don't know Jesus someday are going to be judged and condemned for not knowing who God is, for not following Jesus. And that is true, but that does not mean that you and I will not also face God for what we do. That we're not going to be held accountable for the way that we live our lives, for the way that we treat other people. That's what the Bible is saying, that it matters, that you can't get away from it by just not paying attention to it. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Paul wrote this letter to a church. He's saying, what you do, whether good or bad, you're responsible. You and I. It's a sobering reminder. This fits so perfectly in our series. Our series is all about action. It's all about right action. It's about saying, hey, what you listen to in this room, what you study in your life group, which, by the way, if you have not taken a moment to sign up for a life group, please do so. We've got sign-ups after service today and after service next week. Make sure that you do that. But what our series is about is that it's not okay for it to end there. For it to just end in intellectual assent, but rather that we should be activated in the community. That our neighbors should know what we believe based on how we act. That the people we work with should know. That even people that we would want to push out of our lives, just gently ignore. That they need to know too. Verse 13 it says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. This is a, a pretty solemn promise that the way in which you show mercy will be the same gauge by which you're judged. Now, mercy, I think, I think we can think about that in really abstract terms and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm merciful, but, but what about that person that hurts you? What about that person that does not deserve a second chance? Are you being merciful to them? Or is your lack of mercy causing them to be pushed aside, pushing them to the margins? What about your kids? You know, maybe, maybe you have wayward children. Maybe your children have hurt you because they're wayward. Maybe they don't deserve your mercy. They probably don't. But it's not about what is deserved. It's about your mercy because the way in which you judge the way in which you show mercy, that same thing will be used on you and I. We have a responsibility to show mercy. Now I'm just going to go there with you guys. 
I think the place in which this issue of favoritism is most prevalent in our church today, and I'm not saying gateway, I'm saying the Western, the American church, this is not just us, it's everybody, is in the form of Sunday morning cliques. It's in Sunday mornings when we all come to church and we use church primarily as a venue for social interaction with our friends. And what happens is we get so tied up in the fact that church is actually supposed to be something that I go to and I consume, right? I hear good music, I listen to somebody talking at me, and I feel a little bit better about myself. It's all about me connecting with my friends because it's the only place I get to do that. Then when somebody walks in that's really hurting, the only thing they see is little circles of people talking to each other. And what happens when that, when that occurs? You see, in order to be in a circle talking with other people, if you're on the outside of that, the only thing you see is the backs of people. How awful would that be if you were hurting? If you were like, you know what, this is the last chance I'm giving church. I'm done. Church has hurt me too many times, but I'm going to try one more time. And you walk into a church building and all you see is backs. I think this is the area for our church today, for Gateway, for other churches, where we need to lean into most. Because yes, it is about you being fed. It is about you being encouraged that you're here on Sunday morning. But it's more than that. It's about you serving. It's about you showing love to others. Not simply being a consumer, but being a giver. Favoritism is really nasty stuff, guys. So what do we do about it? How do we change our lives in such a way that we can push favoritism to the side, that we can actually be the church that God designed us to be? Well, James gives us the answer in verse 8. It says this, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And that's the answer, is to love your neighbor. Now, that's a really easy thing to say, right? Love your neighbor. But it's much harder to understand, and it's even harder to actually put into practice. So we're going to take just a couple of minutes, and we're going to dissect these two kind of main ideas in this phrase. So what is, what is love all about? Well, love, first and foremost, is about having the best for another person be what it's all about. It's about someone's greatest good coming out. And what's the greatest good for those of us that are followers of Christ that someone could have? It's the knowledge of God. It's knowing him. It's being in relationship with him. It's pressing toward him. And so whether we're talking about Christians, about other people that are followers of Christ, or we're talking about people that aren't yet followers of Christ, our primary motivation in loving people should be, what can I do to push that person closer to Jesus, closer to an interaction with the Holy Spirit, that God might change that person? I'm going to give you a little story about what not to do. So in Wisconsin, we had some neighbors that we loved. They were great people. We used to go over to their house at night from time to time. We'd play games. I mean, almost weekly for a season. They were great people. They were about our age. Got along with them great. But they weren't followers of Jesus. And I can remember from time to time, I mean, we would, we would skirt the issue like we'd say, hey, you know, you should, you should 
come to church sometime. Hey, you know, God bless you. But we never really went there. We never really had the conversation. You know what? I I just got to be real with you. I care about you, and I care about you enough that I think that you should check out Jesus. Because when I found Jesus, everything changed. Everything changed. And you owe it to yourself to at least try it, to at least investigate. And if you don't find Jesus to be what you expect, so be it. But I never went there. So don't be like me. Be better than me. Push people, whether Christ followers or not Christ followers, toward God. Show them the ultimate love, the best thing that you could show them. You know, the second piece of this is the idea of our neighbors. Who's our neighbor? Well, I'm going to spoil the the answer for you. It's everybody you come in contact with. In Matthew, Jesus tells the story of a man who is a Samaritan, who helps a Jewish person that's sitting by the road who's injured. We often, if you've been in church before, we call this story the story of the good Samaritan. Well, those two words, good and Samaritan, are an oxymoron. That would be like saying act naturally. You know what I mean? Like, do you want a cold hot dog? Like, Samaritan and good do not exist in the same sentence for an ancient Jewish person. Samaritans were fiercely persecuted. They were hated. They were half-breeds. They were not God's chosen people. And in the story that Jesus tells, the Samaritan person, he cares for the Jewish man. He comforts him. He pays for his health, for his recovery, for him to stay in a hotel. The point is that it doesn't matter who you're around. Everybody's your neighbor. Yes, that includes the neighbor that you like. But that also includes the neighbor down the street whose dog Goes to the bathroom in your yard every time he walks. That also includes the teller at the bank who gives you lip service you don't like. It's also the collections agent on the phone trying to get your money. I can keep going if you want me to. Everybody is our neighbor. So the challenge for us today is what does that look like to love people, to push people toward God, everyone around us? And maybe it's not being so forthright like I, like I should have been with my neighbor. Maybe it's not saying, hey, you need to know Jesus right away. Maybe it's just saying, hey, can I offer you some hospitality? You want to come over to my house and have coffee? Hey, maybe, you know, maybe we could go out and watch a movie or something. Go catch a baseball game. Or maybe it's just saying, hey, thank you for... You're great waitressing this week. Here's a little extra tip. God bless you. Maybe it's those kinds of things. But when we love people the right way, favoritism goes away, and then we become the community that God designs us to be. So the point for today is to not show favoritism, to love our neighbor, love those around us. Because in doing so, we become more like what God desires us to be. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you, Lord, for this truth that favoritism completely wrecks us. I pray, God, that we would be a people at Gateway Church that are known as not showing favoritism but rather that are known 
as agents of love and change in the world. That people would look at us and say, wow, what, a, what an unbelievable place. That if we weren't here, God, that the community would hurt. I pray, Lord, that as we continue our service with a time of communion, that you would remind us of how wonderful you are, of how high the price was for our salvation. God, that in that, we would love you. In Jesus' name, amen.